If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and, and courage for interpretation. The anointing at Bethany. We find this story in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have a version. The details vary between the stories. Two of them say that the woman anointed Jesus' head. Two of them say she washed and anointed his feet. Same thing with the disciples. They are present in some of the retellings, not in others. In some ways, the Gospel of John is unique in his retelling, most obviously in that he names the woman. John identifies the woman as Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha. In the other Gospels, she is anonymous. Typically, when preaching this passage, if we were to do a word association exercise in which people name without filtering what comes to mind when they think of this woman, more than a few will whisper, prostitute? I mean, this is the case, even though only in the Gospel of Luke is the woman described as a certain kind of woman, a sinner. Even though Luke says nothing about her being a sex worker or really anything at all about sexual activity, 
Prostitute is one of the strongest associations people have with this woman. None of us are surprised at this, of course. We know the quickest way to dismiss a woman is to suggest that she is not pure, not perfect. To suggest a woman has had multiple partners, for pay or not, is the easiest path to character assassination enabled by the casual jokes we make in polite company that shame women. Even though in the text she is praised in no uncertain terms, Matthew and Mark say wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. And even though Jesus never mocked prostitutes or made jokes at their expense, Long-standing church tradition reminds us not to think too highly of her, this woman who recognized the meaning of Jesus before the rest of the disciples. And this is because the text is highly threatening to the patriarchy. In this passage, we see that the Gospel of John offers a radical view of the power women hold. Throughout much of Western history, the Pope, a male, crowned the king, another male. But here, Jesus is anointed, given power, by a woman from the countryside, from the working class, from the laity, to which the church said, oh dear, we can't have that. If we let women do the deciding, they'll ruin the church by insisting on fluff and pageantry. The Pope will end up wearing bright red Prada shoes or something. <laughs> so the woman was cast as loose to keep her and other women who might assert their authority in their proper place. The anointing sends a powerful anti-sexism message enough on its own, but John includes a few other details which deserve note. In that time and place, it was taboo for a woman to be touched by a man. Still more, women's loose hair was perceived as being sensual by men in Galilean culture, and it is still true in some circles today. For Mary to have her hair down in the presence of a man indicated a kind of independence that came from being fully known and fully loved. This, after all, is Mary of Bethany, Mary of Bethany, who refused to stay in the kitchen, instead opting to study at the feet of Jesus. And that's the trouble with letting girls learn, you know. Mary had heard the good news and it empowered her. It set her free. This is not the only anti-sexism message in scripture. This story reminds us of the woman who Jesus corrected in Luke 11. That is correct. You did hear me say that Jesus corrected a woman. It happens one time. <laughs> the woman in the crowd who exclaimed to Jesus, blessed is the womb who bore you and the breasts who nursed you, got a little bit of a surprise, for Jesus was bold in his response. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Because for Jesus, women were more than child-rearing machines, and certainly more than hosts, as an Oklahoma legislator once argued. That's why Jesus does not have a problem being touched 
by women, seeing them with their hair down. Jesus does not have a problem with women talking to men or being active in their bodies and alive in their senses. He does not avoid women or refuse to be alone with them. In short, in the kingdom of God, as portrayed by how Jesus lived, women are equal intellectually and spiritually. Women are equal, full stop. But still, even in 2019, women face some of the same barriers to abundant life. Decisions about our bodies are made for us. Women are still dismissible. Women are still disposable. Obviously, this part of the sermon is brought to you by Women's History Month, a week late, and feminist biblical scholarship with a small-ish side of rage. <laughs> rage about the twisting of sacred stories in ways that silence women, ways that box in men. Rage about the way things are, even though Christians in particular, have clear stories that smash the patriarchy, freeing us all from the death-dealing power structures we are so used to conforming to. When we read this story, given what we know about gender stereotypes and gender norms, it is a wonder that Mary had the courage to do what she did. She must have known that she would have been shamed for such an act, called out, dismissed, humiliated. But she does it anyway. This woman made what one of my seminary professors described as a lavish, life-affirming gesture to Jesus. And she didn't blink. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everyone was looking at her she claims her power to honor and celebrate a teacher in a way no one had before. And this is quite foreign to many women. In a U.S. study on conformity to feminine norms, researchers found the most important attributes associated with being feminine are being nice, pursuing a thin body ideal, showing modesty by not calling attention to one's talents or abilities, being domestic, being monogamous, and using our resources to invest in our appearance. Basically, we have to be willing to stay as small and sweet and quiet as possible and to use our time and talent to look pretty. If we don't, we feel shame. Shame is the fear of disconnection, the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished that makes us, it makes us unworthy of connection. If we don't conform to societal norms, we are afraid we will be cast out. But the woman who anoints Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about any of that, or, or maybe she was, given the timelessness of gender stereotypes and norms. But still, she chose brave. She ignored protocol and the status quo. I'm guessing she understood the risk. She likely knew, as most women know, the risk of being shamed for not staying small, sweet, and quiet. And by small, sweet, and quiet, 
I mean staying within the accepted and expected behaviors and attitudes for women, which certainly did not include anointing anyone, for goodness sake. The significance of the act is, of course, remarkable. Mary recognized and honored Jesus in a way no one had before. And there are thousands upon thousands of sermons on how this story reveals to us the significance of Jesus. But just as remarkable is the courage it took for Mary to kneel down, break open the ointment, and wash Jesus' feet. Not a single word from her is recorded, but it was the opposite of small, sweet, and quiet. This is why Judas responded so forcefully, Mary must be put back in her place. She let herself fill the room just as much as the fragrance of the perfume did. She did what she knew to be right. And I wonder what might happen if Christian women started taking our sacred stories seriously. I wonder, too, what would have happened if the man in this story hadn't been bound by shame, shame that likely caused him to condemn the woman who anointed Jesus. The word shame doesn't appear in the text. You can see that. But I wonder if we can't read in between the lines or at least add our own parenthetical remarks as John was so fond of doing. Rosalind helped us make note of those little asides as she read the scripture. The parenthetical remark is one of John's favorite storytelling strategies. He lets the reader in on what's really going on, or at least what he thinks is really going on. And John wanted us to know that Judas really didn't care about the perfume, that Judas threw a fit about wanting to sell it and give the money to the poor only because he really wanted it for himself. And that might be true, there isn't too much sympathy for old Judas giving his role in Jesus' arrest and execution. John is a good storyteller. He's giving us a little hint of the betrayal that's to become. But a feminist reading of the text prompts us to wonder if there may be more to it than just men are terrible, Judas was a man, so Judas was terrible. I wonder if Judas' response had something to do with shame, because men experience shame just as women do. Research professor Brene Brown's work says that we judge people in areas where we are vulnerable to shame. So I wonder if Judas was feeling like he wasn't giving enough, doing enough, being enough, I wonder if Judas felt the kind of devotion and love towards Jesus that inspired Mary to make this lavish, life-affirming gesture, but he was held back by convention and restrained by gender expectations. So instead of kneeling beside Mary, Judas thought he should embarrass her, perhaps to try to quiet the voice in his own head that told him to join her, well, 
He couldn't because that's just not what men do. Just like women, men know their assigned role and they have their script memorized. U.S. researchers identify winning, emotional control, dominance, power over women, disdain for homosexuality, and pursuit of status as some of the most common attributes associated with masculinity. Judas knew the feeling. A gesture like Mary's would have made, would made him seem emotional, as if he cared. Or worse, what if it revealed that he was afraid? Afraid of the road that Jesus seemed hell-bent on taking. Afraid of what it would lead to. Afraid he would lose his friend and teacher. What would the other disciples think? Judas was trapped he was not free. When Dr. Brown asked men to define shame, they responded, shame happens when people think you're soft. It's degrading and shaming to be seen as anything but tough. Shame is weakness. Showing fear is shameful. You can't show fear no matter what. Men, generally speaking, live under the pressure of one unrelenting message. You cannot be afraid. You cannot show fear. You cannot be vulnerable. This is the male version of telling women to be small, sweet, and quiet, and it is just as suffocating. Both messages, be small, sweet, and quiet for women, and you cannot be vulnerable for men, are killing us making us live less than honest lives and causing us to turn on each other. That's what happened, I think, in this story. Better for Judas to shame Mary, make it seem as if she were irresponsible and frivolous, than risk being seen as emotional, caring, tender. Better to be thought of as principled, reasonable, responsible. Shame kept Judas from being free to do what he knew was right and good. Earlier, I wondered what might have happened if Judas hadn't been bound by shame, but we actually do know what happened. We, we hear that story in the next chapter, John 13, where we find Jesus washing the feet of the disciples the word used to describe how Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, ekmaso, is the same word used to describe how Jesus wiped the feet of the disciples after washing them at the Last Supper. Jesus' response to Mary's act of love and devotion was to repeat it, to pay it forward, to make it a practice, one we continue even today that's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't play the shame game. And he modeled for us what it looks like to turn towards each other, not against each other. So in this last week of Lent, perhaps it's shame that we let go of. Shame that puts us in a box. Shame that 
makes us stay sweet and small and quiet, shame that holds us back from being vulnerable, shame that makes us lash out to humiliate someone else, shame that makes us afraid. The good news is that we have no reason to fear disconnection or rejection, for we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, certainly not artificial gender norms. We begin to draw the circle wider as we practice turning towards each other instead of against each other. The world is in need of lavish, life-affirming gestures in word and deed that cause love to grow and to deepen. We have the good news, church, and it is that we are free. So let's start acting like it. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.